Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Claire Jones about the business of birth control, contraception and commerce in Britain before the sexual revolution. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Dave. Um, th- this is a fascinating and fabulously interesting book, uh, both actually as a history book, um, but also I think it's a cracking read uh, for, for the general reader. Um, oh, do you? Was, That's good to know. No, it is, yeah. It reads really uh, really well. It's probably worth saying up front that um, parts of it are absolutely hilarious too, <laughs> uh, which, you know, is, is quite unusual uh, for, uh, for a history book, I guess. And I suppose it's like part of your broader agenda to say that we should think about things like the history of science um, history of medicine through, if not a kind of primary kind of business lens, but we should definitely take into account both commerce and, um, I guess, materiality as well. And I'm interested to start there, really. Why did you choose to kind of tell a story of uh, what I guess is kind of sexual practices um, at the beginning of the 20th century through the lens of firms and commerce? Yeah, I think... As you say, it's been um, a kind of mission of mine, really, to integrate the history of business and commerce into history of science and medicine. And I think history of birth control is a really important and fascinating case in this, because um, when people tend to think about the history of birth control, they think of the medical profession, the kind of birth control movement, even the intervention of the state into increasing provision but um, a few people have really taken seriously companies and the commercial element so what I try and do in this book is bring that to the forefront and not just say that um, you know commercial companies were important but they were integral and integrated into the birth control movement itself to the point where the boundaries between what is medicine and what is commerce are very blurred. And it's not clear at all um, that medicine was more knowledgeable about birth control than companies. And in fact, companies are the ones in the market long before the medical profession want to get involved in birth control. And a lot of, um, in a lot of cases, the medical profession rely on companies for their knowledge on um, the best um birth control techniques and technologies. So actually, um, what I'm trying to do with this book is shift it from a medical story, if you like, to a commercial one, or more more precisely, a mixed one. And and when you do that, and hopefully what I've done in the book, is reveal that medicalisation is itself an important form of rhetoric. So in the interwar period in particular, the medical profession are trying to gain um, control and assert their authority in birth controls in ways that they haven't done previously. And so 
obviously there's a form of um, rhetoric that surrounds that um, to say that this is what birth control should look like and it's based on medical knowledge and it's based on um, laboratory testing and um, clinical testing and scientific standardisation. But firms, they can't do that without the company knowledge and the technologies that the companies provide. The other thing is probably worth flagging quite early on um, in your kind of quest to reorientate the story, uh, to take business and commerce kind of kind of seriously, is because this is a book about the British and you know contraceptive habits. We've you know got to think about morality, respectability, the kind of you know sort of classic, uh, I guess policing of, of certain kind of boundaries um, around sex in, in, in the period. And, and it'd be good actually to do a bit of scene setting about, on the one hand, you've got, you know, the story of commerce, but also you've also got the story of struggles for like what is respectable and what is like um, acceptable uh, as a way of kind of communicating and, and talking about sex in um, British society at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think, this is not just a story about birth control, but it's a story about temporality and about the interwar period in particular. And the interwar period is extremely interesting because it's what you know Harold Perkin calls this halfway house between the kind of Victorian Edwardian um, moral sensibility um, and all quite conservative sexual attitudes. I mean, of course, people were having sex in the Victorian Edwardian period, but the discourse surrounding sex was um, small and and almost non-existent in the public realm really um but at the same time you've got that kind of um those attitudes rubbing up against new post first world war attitudes and um and an optimistic version of the future built on science technology and medicine and this idea that um people are all modern in the interwar period and this very kind of progressive look at sex divorced um birth control and sex uh, sex divorce from reproduction um as it was um obviously still among married couples largely but um this idea that sex can be fun and that um you don't you know sex and reproduction don't have to come together so the interval period is this period where these two kind of attitudes towards birth control and sex rub up against each other, uh, pardon the pun, quite um, uncomfortably with these kind of um, moralists rejecting any kind of um, sexual um, expression Um, and birth control movement, the medical profession starting and others, um, the Bloomsbury set, for example, um, trying to become more sexually expressive. And in the middle of this, you've got companies trying to navigate um, how best to sell their contraceptive products. So the way in which they do this, and this is something that I explore very much in the book, is um, trying to make their products visible, but at the same time make them invisible. So by that, I mean using euphemistic terms like um, surgical appliances, it's only really from the 1920s that birth control appliances 
um, is actually starting to be used in advertisements and things like that. Before that, it's domestic specialties or surgical appliances. Um, But those that want these kind of products know what domestic specialties and surgical appliances mean. They know what birth control appliances mean. But um, those who remain ignorant or those that um, don't want to see um, um, can do so. So companies tie this very kind of tight, tight tightrope, walk this tight, tight tightrope between this older morality of, of, of kind of conservative sexual attitudes and these new modern progressive um, sexual attitudes and try and not offend, but also make a profit, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I guess that's one of the big things that um, the second chapter of the book gets into. And, 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 and actually, I should have said maybe early on, you, you are very into trying to highlight what consumers uh, thought of things. And it might be an interesting question to kind of carry on that that line of thought of the um, the tightrope that uh, companies are treading to think about what consumer responses were to some of these kind of um, respectable brands for birth control. I mean, one of the reasons I think a lot of historians have not really discussed consumer attitudes is because evidence is is just not there, and you. Um, it's very difficult to uncover really what consumers were thinking. Um, And that's what I really try and uncover. And in the second chapter in particular, as you say, um, I do look at this and I was very fortunate enough to find an existing archive, the archive of Rendell, um, which was established in 1885 as a um, soluble pessary maker and seller and they were called the wife's friend. Now the company still exists, which is fascinating. They don't sell um, soluble pessaries made out of quinine and cocoa butter anymore to the British market, but they do license the wife's friend to the Chinese market. So there's an interesting kind of current story there about um, contraceptive cultures across the world. Um, but anyway, within this archive of Rendell, the wife's friend, again, that's a euphemistic term, that women, uh, married women who um, want a contraceptive product know what the wife's friend means. Um, in this archive, there's a whole series of testimonials from different consumers giving their opinion um, of this wife's friend product um, from the 1940s, largely. And what's, I think, most interesting and comes out of this um, is their attachment to the brand, the wife's friend, and not only the brand, but the trademark, the numbered trademark of the brand. And these consumers are very worried about um, imitation. Lots of companies enter the market once a, a contraceptive is popular and start to imitate. So there's all sorts of wife's friend that pop up Um, from the late 19th century onwards. Um, And because it's trademarked, Rendell often takes them to court um, for that. But a lot of of judges don't really want to deal with what they think is quite a seedy business. So um, some of them don't actually make it to trial um, and some of them don't go in Rendell's favour because it's very difficult to prove um, original ownership, um, particularly in print for all sorts of complicated legal reasons, which is a bit boring. But um, 
the point is the consumers are very concerned about imitation so these letters talk about say thank you for your product i've been using it with success for 50 years or 40 20 years um i've recommended it to my friends um but I'm worried about this imitation. I tried to buy them at this shop and the box didn't have your number on it. Um, can you tell me whether this is a proper product? So um, what's what comes out of this really is it's not really about efficacy and reliability of the product. These, these consumers think these products, believe these products are effective and have used them um, effectively for however long, even though throughout what kind of medical science, these things are not effective spermicides. They're just not. They wouldn't, they don't pass any tests. Um, but consumers believe in them and very much rely on company goodwill, company reputation, and branding and trademarks um, to navigate the market and um purchase what they believe to be a good product against these fraudulent imitations that come on. So this is that's something that's missed when you only look at the medical side of the story, when you think, okay, is this an effective spermicide? Um, yes or no. Um, it's almost a mute point. These consumers have used them effectively, even though they fail laboratory tests. Um and the branding, as I say, and packaging and brand and trademarks are one of the crucial things for these consumers. You flagged, actually, I guess, a point about um, changing attitudes, um, both, you know, within kind of society at large, but, but also um, in things like, you know, kind of courtroom settings or consumer attitudes. But, but also um, the book tries to get to grips with a profound, uh, I guess, technological or, or manufacturing change for contraceptives. And, and hearing you talk about the kind of effectiveness or, or not and, and things like, you know, the kind of uh, medical effectiveness um, of a particular product as a spermicide or, or not uh, made me think of quite early on in the book where you talk about, is it sort of two methods of making contraception, um, you know, sort of modern and, and traditional? And actually thinking about some of the illustrations, the, the pictures um, throughout the book give a real sense of, you know, uh, the rise of a distinctly modern, both in terms of materials, but also in terms of manufacturing and testing practices, uh, mode of, of making contraceptives. So, so what, what's the story of kind of um, contraceptive production, the kind of the material of contraceptives? Um, during the interwar era? So in the interwar period, um, in the 1930s specifically, um, we get latex rubber manufacturing, um, which is a distinctly new rubber process which allows companies to produce condoms in particular more easily and more quickly and more cheaply. So there's obvious benefits to us, um, to them, um, and why they might go down the latex manufacturing route. And it's also, I should say, safer. There's lots of reports of companies that use the 19th century vulcanization and cement rubber process for production and that end up burning down um, because it's so dangerous and the chemicals used are really volatile. So latex is safer as well. Um, but I did not want to tell this 
kind of more traditional story of um, rubber production revolution, which I think comes across in many histories of contraception. Um, it isn't as simple as that. It's not a case of we have this new production method of latex, um, which actually is, well, you know, it is familiar to us. Latex condoms are familiar to us. They're also thinner for the consumer as well. So they um, are, you know, less interruptive of uh, the sexual act, if you like. Um, but it's not a simple case of we have this new method and now we're going to adopt it. La uh, one of the companies I look at called Lambert are in the are in the production business from at least the 1860s and stick with cement manufacturing until the 1940s and 50s at least. And that's because they've already got a foothold in the market for the more the, the more traditional um, rubber production um methods and their contraceptives so why would they change it because latex production is extremely expensive to to buy the machinery in the first place there's no guarantee that the market is there if you've already got a market um for uh rubber contraceptives why um change it so there's a suggestion that consumers prefer um these existing um contraceptive products rather than the new one so what i argue actually that this idea of a revolution in contraceptive manufacturing is also one that's rhetorically made up by um, the medical profession in the 1930s who were trying to um, get on board with latex condoms and um, production themselves. So it's in their interest to sell this as a revolution because they're in, they become involved in it um, and they become involved in it through the introduction of standardised testing, and so some of the pictures that you referred to um, in the in the first chapter um, show companies trying to navigate these new rigorous standardised testings of their rubber goods. So you have one guy dangling a condom from a chair, uh, or dangling a chair from a condom, should I say? Um, to try and test its strength and its stretchability. Um, and you have a couple of other guys sitting at a workbench blowing up condoms to check that they don't have holes in. Um, so these new standards become important, um, becoming integral to supply birth control clinics and medical practitioners that start to get involved in the late 1920s, 1930s onwards. Um, so once these kind of latex products start to become popular, you see more companies start to adopt them. So it's the other way around, really. It's a demand-led market. So the, revol the latex revolution didn't really hit the market, I'd say, until about 10, 20 years after the technique is introduced. Um, so I think that's what's different about my story. If we talked about business, talked a bit about consumers, I suppose like the kind of maybe third set of, of actors here are medics. And I'm drawing that really kind of broadly, both in terms of, um, you know, from as wide as like, you know, doctors or uh, clinics, um, right the way through to things like chemists, actually. And, and there's a really fascinating discussion of um, chemists as a, you know, sort of respectable, almost, you know, kind of new uh, profession. Uh, with regards to, to contraception, 
Well, I'm interested in uh, in medics because I suppose the sort of and you've alluded to this already. You know, the validation of um, these products as being effective, consumer, you know, kind of confidence is in some ways, you know, sort of helped by medics, but is in other ways, you know, kind of um, threatened or you know is, is questioned by medics. So, so what's the story of, uh, of of medicine, particularly, I guess, the kind of story of how the clinic was as much a site of commerce as it was a site of medicine. Yeah, I think the story of the birth control clinic is a very interesting one and probably something that historians of contraception have paid most attention to because they become um, an emblem, if you like, a site of birth control practice and, and knowledge and uh, a technological distribution. Um, but again, as with everything, I try to complicate the picture. It's not just, you know, the birth control movement opened lots of clinics and Jove um, promoted contraceptive use and that's how people started using contraception. I mean, for a start, we know that clinic attendance was not that high um, and was largely... Um, Attend, loads, largely middle-class women that attended um, the clinics, even though the kind of birth control pioneers like Marie Stopes and um, the Family Planning Association had um, those that could not afford to go elsewhere for contraception, so like a working-class women in particular, um, to use the clinics. So... Um, the, the 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 picture of the the birth control clinic as um just a place of um contracept is where the revolution in birth control started is just not um not entirely accurate i would argue um but where they are important is when um is for kind of medical knowledge and education in contraceptive issues to start and so um there you think about the medical curriculum in the interwar period, there is nothing in the medical school curriculum about contraception. So any doctor that is interested in um, helping their patients with contraception have nowhere else to go but um, the birth control clinic. So um, it's an interesting educational setting um, as well. But they're also, I argue, sites of commerce, right? So... Um, Companies obviously benefited massively by supplying clinics, but also, as I say, the numbers of supply weren't that high. But reputationally, as um, products became associated with clinics and with the medical profession, um, custom beyond the clinic was enhanced. So business was enhanced just through the reputation of being associated with a clinic, not just being associated with a clinic, but also having a reputation of passing all these spermicidal efficacies and rubber testing, um, all these tests that began to be a prerequisite of being suppliers of, of these clinics. Um, so these clinics were so important reputationally to uh, the industry, the contraceptive industry, that companies began to establish their own clinics um, and were not entirely honest um, all the time that they were 
you know, commercially run for profit. So a lot of times consumers or patients weren't clear which was a family planning association clinic and which was a clinic established by a company just solely um, that supplied one company's um, products. So again, this is an example of the blurring between um, medicine um, and commerce. But what I should also say as well about the clinic is that, you know, medical practitioners are not were not themselves devoid from the influence of commerce. Even with the introduction of more rigorous um, rubber testing and spermicidal testing, um, lots of practitioners still relied on products that failed such tests. So this idea of reliability and efficacy of contraceptives um, based on laboratory and clinical standardised testing only really had an impact in the 1950s. Um, Previously, you, you hear there's there's records of individual doctors and individual clinics saying, well, you know, I know this this product failed the test, but we have been using them for 20 years and they are a good company or as honest as business permits, that, um, as one of the subtitles of the chapter is called. So I'm going to continue using them. So a lot of the time medics reject their own scientific standards to, again, rely on company reputation, company relationships and and goodwill. So, um, again, this just under, you know, underscores the importance of um, the commercial angle. And it's not just about medical testing and laboratory testing. What about chemists? And I think, no, but but I think particularly... um, just thinking about, you know, we, we talked about the materiality of, of um, concept of production, changes in, um, is, is rubber technology a word? But, you know, um, the, the transformations of, of the era. I was really struck by, uh, you know, a discussion of a device with regards to chemists, which was the slot machine. And I suppose that um, points us towards where we're going to conclude, which is to do with, a you know, a kind of a, a modern uh, or contemporary discussion, but what, what's the story of the slot machine? Because that is, you know, um, certainly for male contraceptives, um, this, you know, almost kind of iconic uh, device that is now almost inseparable from the story of things like um, condom use, for example. Yeah, the, I think the slot machine is a really fascinating um, example of a technology used to sell another technology and or, or at least be, um, promote it um so i mean the slot machine is a technology that's used more generally um to sell chocolate or railway tickets train tickets um from about 1900 but it's really in the interwar period that a certain aggressive um contraceptive and specifically condom manufacturers and distributors um, start to use slot machines um, as a way to sell their condoms. And for them, it's um, a great selling device because there's no need for a shopkeeper. There's no need for, uh, you know, open and closed hours. They're just available on the established on the street corner or outside a chemist shop if the chemist owns a slot machine. Um, and people can put in 
something like a penny, two penny um, for a condom and at any hour of the day and um, not be kind of judged by the shop owner or the, sh- uh, the, the shopkeeper. So um, it's a very discreet um, and um, personal way of, of buying condoms at any time. So there's obviously obvious benefits for both um, supplier and consumer, but these kind of slot machines that are largely kind of put in street corners on, on major cities. So there's lots in London and a handful in places like Leeds, um, Leicester, um, they're obviously very, very visible and they're too visible for social conservatives, moral associations like the Public Morality Council. Um, and they kind of go, are up in arms about how awful the, the erection of these machines on street corners are for the um, public morals of the country. And that they sort of, one of the key things that they're concerned about is access by unmarried youths um, who are then going to use these things um, and it's kind of the downfall of society through the promiscuous use having sex outside marriage so it becomes almost a moral panic surrounding um, these vending machines Um, and this is quite heavily debated across um, different organisations the church um, MPs and parliament and um, there, there isn't any good way to restrict um, access to these machines for certain individuals while um, allowing legitimate consumers, if you like, which are the married by the interwar period. It's, you know, it's acceptable for the married to be able to control their own fertility. Um, there's no w- good way um, for restricting access to certain members of society. And so nothing really happens. Um, And then the sort of Second World War happens. And um, by 1949, more machines start to emerge after the Second World War. And that's possibly because of the kind of popularity, the growing popularity of the condom during the Second World War. Um, So eventually in 1949, there's a bylaw that's passed that, kind of outlaws slot machines and then they sort of disappear from Britain's streets by 1950. But what's really interesting, I think, when I go to European cities, I haven't been for quite some time now, unfortunately, but if you go to different European cities, Durex machines are often on street corners. So I've seen them in Paris, Barcelona, Bucharest. Um, They're just, they're still there. So they didn't, these other European countries didn't seem to have this tussle this kind of public battle um, around slot machines that we had in Britain um, around respectability and promiscuity and all these kinds of issues. So I think that's that's really, really quite interesting. And how chemists come into this story is the same kind of debates are about chemist window displays as chemists become more like retailers and less like the, you know, sort of like boots. Um, they're kind of quasi-pharmacists and quasi-retailers um, attracting consumer attention becomes more important and there's nothing to stop con- um, chemists 
establishing window displays of contraceptive other than kind of, um, you know, sensibilities um, until the 1944 Pharmaceutical Society clause that says you're not allowed to kind of publicly display them. Um, so until then, chemists who are a broad church, um, it's up to them whether they do display contraceptives or not. But again, this whole debate around, well, if you don't display them and if you don't sell them, um, you are not only damaging British trade, but you're damaging um, the rights of legitimate consumers to see and per and purchase these these goods. Um, and Lord Dawson, who is a kind of birth control advocate as well as like the royal physician, um, he's very kind of concerned about the ignorant woman consumer who doesn't really know much about contraceptives, but knows when she sees it in a window display or perhaps in a vending machine, what she needs and what she wants. So she would be too embarrassed to ask for it, but she could possibly point at it. So if you restrict these things so that unmarried youths um, can't get at them, then you also damage the ignorant woman. So that's about it in a nutshell. And it's funny, I mean, my concluding question was going to be about bringing things uh, into the present but it's funny how I mean, there are definitely things in, in the book and, and we haven't really got into this but um you know the kind of long running long strain of eugenic thought around contraception um that to the kind of contemporary eyes or contemporary reader is like oh yes you know that we we could definitely sort of distance ourselves from that or you know that um is absolutely not we to kind of paraphrase Foucault you know that is not we other um kind of interwar um individuals or, or society but but there are definitely some elements where you, you know the, the analysis particularly thinking about that relationship between the enabling and, and the kind of constraining elements of commerce brings us into the present and as a kind of concluding point I'm really interested in, in what the analysis says um, now, really, you know, is is it something where do you think you know we should be grappling with um, things like contraception from a much more kind of commercial, almost as a complement to say public health, um, which I guess kind of dominates things like contraception now? Um, are there you know kind of elements of um, the book that are dare I say it, like a, a bit of a kind of, you know, a reminder of um, a particularly kind of problematic or, you know, really difficult history um, that we assume has been left behind, but actually, you know, is maybe still with us uh, when we think about contraception in contemporary British society. Mm. Um, there's quite a lot to that question. So I'm just thinking, um, I mean, certainly, is dead in a foreign country, and we we can learn nothing from it. Well, as as a historian, I have to have to say yes and no, and <laughs> it's more complicated than that, as per usual. Um, but I would say that we live, we still have a very pluralistic marketplace when it comes to contraception, right? So, medicine plays an important part. Um, the provision of things like, you know, IUDs and the contraceptive pill, um, but also the 
you know, the market for condoms, you can get them at supermarkets. Durex is still a huge brand that originates in the interwar period. Um, so we do have that pluralistic market um, still. And I think what's interesting and what I try and argue in the end of the book is that um, the emergence of the contraceptive pill in the 1960s almost makes gives the impression and creates this rhetoric that it's all been medicalised and always has been. Um, which is simply not the case. Um, so where do we go? I also think that we still have this very moralistic um, view around contraceptive and still who has access. I mean, there's still some kind of um, reservations about the, the distribution of contraceptive to school, you know, teenagers and... Um, by certain groups um and you know we haven't even really touched upon abortion which i don't really touch upon in the book because i definitely wanted to avoid that whole um issue which could be a book in itself um but one of the examples i do bring up and that is actually relates to the work of some great sociologists at the university of kent on the morning after pill even the word the morning after pill is not really um, is a colloquialism that shouldn't really be used. It's more the emergency emergency contraception as well kind of evokes this fear, you know, around um, contraceptive use. And this idea that you can't just buy uh, an emergency contraceptive pill over the counter, that you have to go to a pharmacist and, you know, be subjected to a series of questions about your sexual relationships um, to obtain this pill Um still highlights this kind of moralistic um, view on contraceptive um, consumption. Um, and some of the so- work of my soci- sociologist colleagues say that, that there's, there's absolutely no kind of pharma- pharmaceutical or scientific reason that you shouldn't be able to buy this pill. There's no safety concerns around it. It's actually societal constructions around what is respectable and what's not. So for me, that's really interesting and um, shows us more about the continuities around um, respectability and moral concerns surround contraception. Um, And just lastly, I think, because you've alluded to it and something that I haven't really discussed is the eugenic kind of strand that runs through this and Marie Stokes obviously a prominent interwar eugenicist and a leading figure in the birth control movement and a, you know clinic pioneer but um you know some of the stuff that she advocated is um pretty morally repugnant um to our eyes I would I would say um but at the same time she believed that all women especially working class women should be able to control their fertility and mainly that those women um who'd already had children shouldn't be kind of their bodies and their minds shouldn't be kind of subjected to having any more um so i mean some of the book goes into she was quite a character which i think comes across i hope um dave that's that's one way of putting it yeah (laughs) Um, 
and you know the, the eugenic comes the eugenics strain of it comes through in the in the naming of contraceptives so one of her contraceptives which she worked on a company to with a company to produce is called the racial one is called the pro race so these can these wider population concerns about um getting the the fittest of the population to reproduce while at the same time stopping those less desirable um through the widespread distribution of of, of population of, of contraception to the less desirable so um yeah the eugenics threat the eugenics angle is always kind of under the surface there especially when we talk about marie stokes but there are a lot of people in the interwar period you know the flammy planning clinic who had to deal with marie stokes because she was such an important pioneer um but also wanted to distance themselves from some of the things that she did and thought um so there is nuance there it's not one kind of straightforward eugenic um view as it were i'm I'm glad you sort of mentioned you know that there's all kinds of things in the book that we we haven't even touched on and obviously i recommend people buy and and read the book you know said at the start it's both you know kind of a fascinating read as well as i think an important um intervention into the historiography um of both you know things like history of medicine but also history of the period as well what are you thinking in terms of your next project i mean it's always a bit sort of harsh to ask someone who's just finished um a book to be like well that's you know lovely but it's finished now what are you doing next um but what are you doing next (laughs) (laughs) are you thinking for example you know you mentioned that there probably is um you know a, a book um on abortion or actually you know that book might have been done by by other scholars um there's you know Certainly, you could extend this analysis, I think, really richly and rewardingly into the period of, as the book's title kind of alludes to, the, the sexual revolution um, in, in the 1960s and, and 1970s. Um, or um, maybe you're just, you know, really tired of talking about condoms and would like to do something entirely different. Yeah. I mean, there is an element of that. So it's taken a long time. To, to write this book just purely to have the time and sit down and do it so I'm really pleased that I've finally done it so there is an element of kind of fatigue about it but there are loads of areas within the book that I'd like to expand um particularly around I think the print culture stuff I've only really touched the surface on the print culture angle so um the kind of production of um medical books around contraception, but also their imitation by companies that tried to disguise their advertising by making them look like medical books, medical textbooks um, around contraception. So um, I had to take a lot out, particularly of that chapter around the print culture stuff. So I'd, I'd like to do a bit more of that. I think there's also more to say about consumption and certainly um the, the Marie Stokes correspondence, there's, you know, 10,000 letters or so that I didn't go through systematically. And I think there's more to say on consumption um, through that correspondence. Um, 
I don't really want to go too much into the sexual revolution because there's a number of great scholars already doing really good work on that. So I might leave that. Um, but I do, I am still really keen on the topic and think that um, there's more to be said and done on it more generally. I just need to have a bit more of a think about that. But beyond contraception, I'm now looking at um, teeth and oral health and um, specifically how kind of the rise of oral health regimes and the practices of toothbrushing become almost kind of accepted. So in the 1920s, even very few people had a toothbrush. In the 1940s, one in two people had a toothbrush. So what's going on there? What happened? Um, I'm really interested in that. And again, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a story of medical intervention, state intervention and commercial intervention. So um, I guess I'm just writing the same book with toothbrush, toothbrushes. 